0: I suspect the idea of um, individual freedom has been the most, or possibly one of the most, at least important driving forces in society in the last hundred years or so. Uh, The idea, of course, is much, much older than that. Just go back a little bit further to 1776, the American Declaration of Independence pronounced We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was actually exactly the same year that Adam Smith in um, uh, Britain published his Inquiry into the Wealth of Nations, in which he um, more or less, frankly, invented the discipline of economics and he advocated, crucially, giving freedom to people to, uh, with, without um, um, imposing uh, limits and controls on their um, money-making activities. Invented the idea of the free market economy. It wasn't that much long later in the mid-19th century that Marx and Engels published the Communist Manifesto, 1848. They declared there, at the end, the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. Workers of the world unite. Do you see that theme? Freedom, liberty, again and again and again. But those intoxicating ideas... Of freedom really took hold, really started to establish themselves, I think, in the 20th century. It was then in the East that Marx's ideas of freedom um, created the communist regimes of Russia and Eastern Europe and China, and in the West that Adam Smith's ideas of of individual freedom and liberty created the the, um, modern day um, liberal democracy with free market economies the prophets of freedom of a previous age, finally created their new societies in the uh, uh, 20th century. Maybe that Martin Luther King's great cry in the middle of the 20th century, let freedom reign, was typical of the cry of everybody in the 20th century. And then came sex. Sex. Philip Larkin uh, famously suggested that sexual intercourse began in 1963 between the end of the Chatterley ban and the Beatles' first LP. Well, I'm reasonably well-educated biologically and I'm pretty confident that he was wrong, but uh, uh, not least because the cries for sexual freedom were older than that perhaps crucially at the beginning of the 20th century, the pioneers of sexual liberation um, were, um, by and large, thinkers. Groups of thinkers gathered to um, uh, rethink the whole of society and uh, a significant proportion of them at least accepted that they did so in order to achieve for themselves and mankind sexual liberation. Crucial amongst that uh, in this country was the Bloomsbury Group. There were were people like um, Virginia Woolf and um, John Maynard Keynes and uh, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, all set about rethinking life in order to free us from what they saw as the outmoded sexual restrictions of the past. And together, they had a massive uh, intellectual influence on the 20th century. The popular changes were slow, but they gathered uh, momentum down through the century until uh, we got to the point in the 60s and 70s of what people call the sexual revolution. And today, for good or ill, our attitude to sex is completely different from what it was a hundred years ago. Of course, no one in this room is going to have any doubt about what I'm going to say about uh, the sexual revolution. Uh, I'm reminded of the story of the American president, Calvin Coolidge, who went to a church without his wife. On one occasion, he returned home and she asked him to say what the sermon was about. And he said, um, Sin. So she said, well, what did he say? What did the preacher say about sin? And he said, I think he was against it. <laughs> well, actually, if you leave here this morning thinking that all I have to say about, uh, 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 say is that uh, sex and I'm against it, then you have missed and I will not have taught you what the Apostle Paul has to say. He says something far richer, far deeper, far more liberating. He tells us how to be truly free. Now, if you've been here on uh, previous occasions, you will know, uh, as we've looked through 1 Corinthians, that Corinth was frankly a mess. The church was wildly wayward in various ways. Um, it, to be honest, if you read through 1 Corinthians, it will come as no surprise to you in chapter 6 to see reference, as we do, to the fact that some of the members of this church were using prostitutes, verse 15. The city, frankly, was um, a sex-saturated city, as our, frank, as our world is today, um, Corinth had the towering um, temple of Aphrodite, looking down on it, where by some accounts there were a thousand temple prostitutes. We too are overshadowed by sex in our society. One study a few years ago um, uh, suggested that there was more money day to day spent in London on the sex industry than there is on London transport. Corinth had the added uh, advantage of being a port city, so there was a constant flow of sexually frustrated and conveniently anonymous sailors. And uh, the culture, the wider culture that it was in, the Roman culture, was distinctly relaxed about sex, at least um, in certain dimensions of it. So uh, when Paul addresses... This city and this church, we should expect that uh, there will be a pretty close connection between his sex-saturated world and ours. The way that Paul addresses them is very relevant to the way that we should address one another. Paul doesn't, you see, in a completely simplistic way, simply say that he's against sex. First thing he does is he says to these people who think that it's fine to use prostitutes that they misunderstand freedom. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. The NIV put the everything is permissible for me in quotations to suggest that maybe Paul is just quoting one of the uh, Corinthians' slogans. But perhaps it's not well, anything that Paul himself would say. Well, actually, reading Paul elsewhere in his letters, he, he comes pretty close to saying that, frankly. In 1 Timothy 4.4 4, he says, for instance, everything God created is good, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. He actually speaks against super-spiritual people who think that the sum total of godliness is to forgive all sorts of... uh, is to, sorry, forbid all sorts of things. So, uh, in fact, we can imagine, I think, that the Corinthians had heard him say exactly this in certain other uh, contexts. Everything is permissible for me. But, he says, such freedoms... Have a nasty habit of impoverishing us. We think we will gain so much, but actually, if we naively exercise that freedom, we end up losing even more. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. It sounds a little bit preachy, like a sort of solemn old monk saying, Not everything is good for your soul, my boy. And I'm not, I don't think Paul is saying that. He really is saying, in a, in a simple, straight way, Not everything brings us gain. Or you could put it in an even more contemporary way, Some things make you a loser. Freedom movements, um, the, the, the promise of freedom sometimes actually impoverishes us. Sometimes the promise of freedom actually ends up enslaving us. Everything is permissible, but I will not be mastered by everything. We have seen that so clearly in our society the last couple of hundred years. Karl Marx's great fr- cry of freedom in the 19th century for the workers turned into the most horrendous oppression for the workers. We're living in the middle of a time of, uh, of economic slump and um, uh, potential, frankly, catastrophe as a result of unfettered um, freedom given to, uh, to certain people to manipulate uh, our markets and so on. Ideas of freedom can be very dangerous. We think we're going to gain. We end up being the losers. We think we're going to be free and we end up being enslaved. Sexual liberation is the same, says the Apostle. Yeah, we're free. We are free in some quite profound ways. We're not bound any longer by simple rules. Do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. Freedom exercised in a right way can cause massive good as many of the freedom movements have in the last hundred years. But not always. Not if it's unfettered. Imagine a relationship that was frankly never going to last. But it but it didn't follow its natural course of waxing and waning because it got complicated by sex. And then it becomes a terrible Wrench. Imagine the unplanned pregnancy that then shapes the rest of our lives as a result of one night of pleasure. The ruination of beautiful friendships, the destruction of basically healthy marriages that could have been patched together but for the sexual failure the degradation of relationships between sexes. Not not to mention the rise in sexually transmitted diseases, childlessness due to a pelvic inflammatory disease, and on the list goes. We're not freer. We're not freer as a society. And you know, I've noticed that one of our defences as a society against those dark realities, is humour. Now, I I love the TV series Friends, but I, I, I came to notice over time, watching Friends, that all the sexual complications and all the miseries and all the heartache and all the agony was sort of airbrushed out by a good joke. Remember uh, for instance in one episode Monica and Chandler who are going to get married and they're imagining their future together and they picture themselves living in old age happily in their house in the country and then Chandler says um, and Joey can have a room above the garage. Because that's what happens to Philanderers. They end up alone. And most of them don't have friends like Monica and Chandler. Did you know the most rapidly increasing household type in this country in, is the middle aged man living alone? Paul is saying, don't be a loser, don't be a slave. Free. We misunderstand then what freedom is all about. We don't realize that we can exercise our freedom in such a way that it enslaves us and impoverishes us. Then, he says to Christians, we misunderstand. Some profound and important things about our bodies. Paul actually gives a very contemporary definition of them. Um, uh, the purpose of our bodies as our world sees it in verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, our bodily organs are designed with healthy appetites that, that need to be satisfied and just as hunger is, a, is healthy and needs to be satisfied with food, so implicitly sex uh, and sexual urges are healthy and need to be satisfied with food. Sex And anyway, verse 13, he says again, God will destroy them both. Our body is perhaps no more significant than a car that we happen to drive. and Perhaps we will ruin it and uh, trash it, but it was headed for the scrap heap anyway. What matters is me. And with the, uh, the, 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 the safety bags of uh, God's forgiveness, I can walk away from the ruined car. and be given another one. And up to a point, Paul agrees with this. Uh, Next week, for instance, he's very, very clear in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, that um, uh, abstaining from sex for married couples is a bad idea. Sex is great. But he says, simply stopping with food for the stomach and the stomach for food, is to miss some much more profound things. It misses, first of all, the ultimate purpose of our bodies. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord And the Lord for the body. Our deepest purpose, he says, is not merely to satisfy our our basic appetites, but to satisfy the deepest appetite that anyone has. The appetite for God. We were meant not just for food and sex, but for God, and not that, and, and, and that desire for God was not to be expressed just in the dark recesses of our souls; it was ex- to be expressed in everything that I am, in my body and my soul. That is the deepest imp- purpose of me. And, you know, there is something in the human. Psyche that that recognises this again and again. I notice it, for instance, in the religious dimension that people often um, want to add to the satisfaction of their bodily appetites. In Corinth, it was sex in the temple. That was more satisfying in one sense. It combined that hunger for bodily satisfaction with that more deep spiritual satisfaction, um, the risk of being completely trivial in our country, it, it is perhaps the um, Marks and Spencers advertising campaign that says this is not just food, this is M&S food. You know, all of those that sort of surround the satisfaction of a legitimate bodily appetite with some sort of numerous semi-religious significance. Why? That's the way we're made. We were not made simply to be animals that satisfy those immediate bodily appetites. We were made to satisfy those bodily appetites in the bigger, deeper, richer, grander perspective of being human beings, body and soul, made to worship God. And we massively diminish ourselves if we do not see that. Do you see the perfect parallel that Paul brings out in uh, verse 13? Food for the stomach, stomach for food, he says at the beginning. But he says that at the end, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord... And the Lord for the body. If you want to, if you want to catch on to what we're ultimately meant for, he says, recognize this. Just like stomach and food are perfectly matched pairs, you and God are a perfectly matched pair. You were meant for each other, body and soul. We will not discover ultimate satisfaction if we refuse to acknowledge our ultimate purpose. We misunderstand our body's purpose, we misunderstand our body's future, he says, verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will also raise us. The Christian hope is resurrection hope. At the last day, you and I will be raised bodily from the grave. And if you are a Christian, you will live bodily in God's new creation forever. The model set before us, says Paul, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lived again in a human body. You know, there were some people who took a little while to recognise him, but they didn't mistake him for an angel, they mistook him for a gardener. There was no ambiguity about that. He was risen again in a human body. And you too will be, says the Apostle here. More than that, The body of Jesus somehow maintained a continuity in his resurrection life with the life that he had lived before death. He had the marks of the cross on his body. No longer now as a symbol of suffering. No longer causing him pain. As the hymn puts it, those wounds yet glorified above. They are a sign and a badge of his greatness now and his glory. But they are there. Will our future bodies bear the mark of our pre-death life? The Bible's not absolutely clear. It promises, for instance, that the blind will see, the lame will walk, uh, will, will, will leap like uh, a deer. It promises transformation and present limitations being uh, e- eliminated. We don't know. But we do know that when I rise, I will look down and I'll say, That's me. We just cannot misuse our body like a spoiled youth wildly driving the old Ford Escort because he knows when he trashes it, Daddy's going to give him a Lamborghini. The biblical picture is actually much closer to us having the Lamborghini now with all its uncontrollable power and we frankly find it difficult to control it. And we're put on the test track now with the Stig, the Holy Spirit next to us to help us round. And what we learn about driving that body now will one day mean that we can gloriously drive the Lamborghini on the open road. Do not misunderstand or ignore the future of your body. Let me say one other thing about our resurrection future, at least as scripture seems to, uh, to sketch it out for us. There, there is certainly no marriage in the new creation. There is no reproduction and therefore in the, in the sense that we know it now, it seems there will be no sex, but there will not be any sense of loss of physical pleasure in our new creation existence. That is just foreign to everything that scripture says. Somehow we will enjoy the the bodily ecstasy in the future. We will enjoy intimacy with others in the future. Now, not restricted, but expanded to include the whole people of God. No one is going to rise to resurrection life and say, I miss sex. No one is. Tell a six-year-old child about sex and you know, they might understand some of the mechanics of it but they won't understand the depths of it. Tell a tell this worldly, Christian even, something about the new creation and they might understand something of the mechanics of it. But they won't really, we can't really Imagine the glory of it. We are presently like six year old children. But be assured, when you get there, if you are a Christian here this morning, there will be no disappointment. Not a hint. That is our future. We misunderstand the purpose of our body. We misunderstand the future of our bodies. We misunderstand, says Paul, the present status of our bodies. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take a the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? If we are Christians here, it is not just that we have believed something. It's not just that we've decided to behave in a certain way. The process of becoming a Christian is the process of something deeply profound happening to us now. We become, says the Bible, united with Christ. Our bodies become Christ's hands and arms and fingers. And, says Paul, actually, possibly the closest analogy we have to that is sex and marriage. Because sex, he says, inescapably links us in a profound way with another person. Verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become flesh. The sex act is a marriage act, he says. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2, the uh, um, first example of marriage. And he applies it as well, he says, in, in a certain way it's, it, it also applies to a casual meeting of a prostitute. There is a physical union which happens. There, there, is, there is a giving and receiving. There is, there is, a, there is something intimately uh, emotional, even profoundly spiritual in one sense, that happens within the sex act. We don't quite understand it, but we know that it actually causes havoc if it's, a, if it's misused and if it's used appropriately, it binds two people together. We know that. Well, you've already been bound in such an intimate way with Jesus, says the Apostle. That is already the status you have with Jesus In eternity, Christians will be united perfectly with Christ, he says, and that has begun now. In eternity, God's Holy Spirit will perfectly indwell us, he says. And that has begun now, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? In eternity, uh, we will belong to God with perfection and completion, And that has begun now, he says, verse uh, 19 again, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your body. You have begun a status, a relationship with God and Christ and the Holy Spirit right now, he says, the beginnings of what God is going to complete in eternity is there with you now. So how could you possibly then turn your back on that? For some brief moment of pleasure which will damage you and damage your relationship with Christ. Now, do you see what the Apostle Paul's doing? You see, he's doing far, far more than that preacher did for Calvin Coolidge. He's not saying he's against sex, full stop. He's saying that if you want to be fully the person whom God called you to be, open your eyes. See how dangerous as well as glorious the idea of freedom is. See the glory of what it means to to belong to God, body and soul. Your purpose was to find satisfaction in expressing your body for the Lord. Your future is to enjoy resurrection life, bodily life, intimately actually connected with this life now. Your present status is that you are now the members, the organs of Christ. Actually, nobody is changed by simply saying, Don't do that. But people are magnificently changed. If the Holy Spirit applies these truths to the hearts of believers, if the Holy Spirit actually makes you long to find. Complete fulfilment in the expression of your body. The Holy Spirit makes you long for that resurrection life and absolutely determined to do as much as you possibly can to learn on the test track what one day God will um, complete for you in eternity. If the Holy Spirit helps you to realise that you are already bound to Christ, bound to God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian here this morning, and that's just the most glorious thing that could ever happen to you. So, he says, there's an urgent response and a response that only those truths can enable you to do. Flee, he says. Flee sexual immorality. Verse 20, honour God with your body. Single people. I know it's tough. We're going to do more. Sundays in a couple of weeks' time on uh, singleness, and I, I know it's tough. You may think that married types like me forgotten the struggles. I try to keep them fresh in my mind as much as I can. I know it's tough, but you see, in your present status, God has given you an opportunity to learn deep profound, important, satisfying things. Through learning to control your sexuality. And married people, it's exactly the same for you. And you say to men... we have to accept that the majority of Christian men in today's world have some experience or other of um, looking at indecent images. The internet in particular is so easy to get lured into. I signed up for Uh, uh, an internet accountability thing called uh, Covenant Eyes ask me more about it if, uh, if you want to men we need help do you want to find the purpose of your body do you want to rejoice in the future of your body do you want to enjoy the present status of your body or do you want to deny it? And feel miserable. And for all of us, let me say, there is hope. If you are not a Christian here this, this morning, my guess is that you recognize a little bit of what Paul says about the way in which freedom can become loss and slavery. Well, see how you can be set free. You won't be set free by simply telling yourself to do better. You'll be set free by discovering a more glorious purpose for your life. Do you want it? And if you're a Christian here this morning, let me say to you there is forgiveness there is the possibility of transformation. God promises that he does forgive us. That as Tim put it, uh, 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 so helpfully read for us in Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not ultimately. There is nothing that can. And the way back to that love, again and again and again, is through us seeking forgiveness and Christ giving it. And the power to change comes in the context of that forgiveness. The forgiveness sets us free in a new way. Now free not to go and damage ourselves again and again and again. But free to become the people God called us to become. Because we have an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. Flee sexual immorality. Honour God with your body. That is the only way to ultimate satisfaction.